Thank you very much. So we're finishing off today a sermon series in the Romans 12. In Romans 12, we're going to be looking at the last bit of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. At the start of this chapter, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And nowhere has this greater potential to impact our lives and help us to influence this city than in the area of our everyday, ordinary, normal relationships. Relationships are the real business of life. Our greatest joys and our most difficult challenges come through relationships with other people. They have unique potential to cause stress and suffering, but also to bring healing and real hope. And if we're going to be distinctive because of our faith, it will mean our relationships will look different. They will impact, it will impact the way we treat people and the way we react to how other people treat us. And it's not just those around you who you like, who you get on with, but it's also those around you who you maybe find slightly more tricky. The, the colleague, the slightly passive-aggressive colleague who um, writes you really long emails which take you a long time to read. The, uh, the boss who always gives you a whole new piece of work just as you're about to go home. The person who might be a bit of a rival, who you think might like the person that you like, you're not sure, you can't prove it, but they keep commenting on their Instagram pictures, and it's really starting to wind you up, like, just back off, you know. Um, you know, you're not together with that person yet, but you've got a plan, you know, and this person's getting in the way of that plan. Could be all sorts of people. What we see in this passage how God's mercy Having a sight of God's mercy has the potential to help us connect with people in a whole new way, to find friends in places we hadn't realized we could, to forge really great friendships, and even to lose our enemies, and sometimes to turn our enemies into friends. So I want to speak today about how to find your friends and lose your enemies. And we're going to look at two quick things this passage teaches us about that. And the first thing we see in this passage is go low. If you want to find great friends, go low. Paul writes, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And actually, those two things are really connected your ability uh, to live in harmony with other people, to share in their sorrows and to share in their joys is closely connected with the degree of your humility. It's like pride inhibits 
true connection. So pride is like your greatest enemy, and humility is almost your greatest friend. And when you're proud, you, you tend to think only of yourself, your interests, your status, and to think quite highly of yourself. C.S. Lewis said, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. But the thing is, it's very hard to detect pride in ourselves. I wonder how many other people have been going through your minds as I've been speaking about pride so far. You think, oh, I wish Tom was here for this sermon. It would really help him. Um, it's, we, we very rarely detect it in ourselves. Almost no one thinks they have an issue with pride. I tell you, in all the years I've been a pastor, people have come up to me with all sorts of issues and problems. People have come up to me because they've got a problem with sex or with drugs or with alcohol or with money, having too much or too little, with greed or with anger. But no one's ever come up to me and said, Pastor, I'm really struggling with the whole area of pride. We don't tend to think we're proud. It kind of creeps up on you. That's why Tim Keller says pride is like the carbon monoxide of sin. It kills character silently. And you don't even realize it. And the thing is, Pride obscures your perception of yourself. So if you're proud, it's very hard to see, in fact, that you are proud. So I used to work as a criminal defense barrister. I worked for a number of years doing that. And I knew I didn't have an issue with pride. I mean, I just knew that wasn't a problem for me. How could I? You know, I'd worked myself up from um, what I thought were quite humble beginnings. I thought I was quite well-rooted. I've had my feet firmly on the ground. Also, it was obvious to me that, relatively speaking, I was much less proud than the people around me. Uh, You know, I looked around the people I used to work with, and I thought, you know, well, actually, they're obviously more proud than I am. And actually, I was quite proud of the fact that I was less proud than they were. Uh, But what happened was it started, started, pride kind of was starting to creep in. Like, go to parties, and people would be really interested in what I did for a living. They were interested in the fact that I defended people um, who who were accused of crimes. You know, it's interesting, um, the, the sort of people who import drugs and do interesting things. And people were interested by that. Uh, sort, of, sort of people accused of importing drugs and um, um, doing interesting things. And uh, they, people were interested by that. And so it was, it was fun being at parties. And it kind of puffed you up a little bit. And it was even better if they knew the people I worked with. Because some of the people I worked with were the best people in the country at doing what they were doing. So if they knew them, they'd say, oh, you work with that person? And that person, they're brilliant. You must be brilliant. And I'd say, no, 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 no. But inside I was thinking, yes. <laughs> and and it, it started to kind of you know, creep in. And then Paul says, don't be conceited. And to be conceited is to be wise in your own eyes. It's basically thinking that your opinion is always right. I was paid to be conceited. People came to me and they asked me my opinion and I had to be convinced my opinion was right. People paid me a lot of money for my opinion. And it started to impact every area of my life. I started to become conceited in other areas because I thought, you know, well, I obviously know the right answer. And if you you think you always know the right answer, then you stop listening to other people. And if you stop listening to other people, eventually people stop speaking to you. So it kind of gets in the way. But I didn't realize I had a problem. I just thought, oh, you know, people, um, I'm, not, I'm not conceited. I mean, it's just my job. People pay me a lot of money for my opinion. It wasn't until I uh, started working as a pastor that I realized, actually, I might have been conceited because, um, you know, people pay me a lot of money for my opinion then. Now my, um, you know, my, my opinion's available for free. Nobody wants it. <laughs> I, it's available for free. I can't give it away. You know, I give people advice. They ignore it. 
Sometimes they hear it, they go, that's interesting, and they do the other thing. So, do you know how much this would have cost you back in the day? It slowly got a grip on me. And the thing is, when pride starts, it's so subtle, but what it starts to do is it starts to isolate you. It starts to corrode connection. You focus more and more on yourself, your status, your ego. You start to interpret things, every comment, every experience, every interaction through the lens of, what about me? Is this good or bad for me? Does this improve or decrease my status, my image? And there's no room, actually. You're so full of yourself, there's no room, actually, for anyone else, really, in your life for you to focus on them. About the time I was working as a barrister, I had a 25th birthday. And um, that seemed to me like a big milestone at the time. And uh, so I was, I was thinking, I really want to celebrate this. And I had lots of friends in my workplace who all tended to be you know, quite influential, quite affluent um, uh, young barristers. And then I had a, a lot of friends in my church. Um, they were a bit more kind of varied, you know, some of them were kind of cool people from East London, but there was a whole mix of people, and I thought it'd be great to get everyone together, but, I, but most importantly, I, I really wanted to impress my work friends, you know, I felt like, I always felt like, you know, I needed to impress them, so, so I hired a really cool bar in East London, and I invited them all, and I made sure they'd be the right people in the room, a really buzzy crowd, and it would go really well, and I was really excited about it, I'd look really good in their eyes, all that kind of stuff, and, um, but there was one guy... I'd started to kind of get on well with at church. And he was um, at our church in, in East London, and he had come from a difficult background, who had quite a hard life, and he didn't quite fit with the rest of the people that were going to be at the party. And so I was a little bit kind of, oh, I'm not sure if I really want to invite him, I'm not sure how it's going to quite work in terms of the social dynamics. So I was kind of wrestling with it, but eventually thought, oh, I've got to invite, I've got to invite him. So I invited him slightly reluctantly. I said, oh, you know, I'm doing this party, hi, this bar, I'd love you to come along on Saturday night. And he was like, oh, it's really kind of you to invite me. Um, but during the party, I, he didn't show up nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. And if I'm honest, I felt a little bit relieved. I was thinking, I'm, I'm quite relieved that I have to just manage the whole situation. He's a little bit awkward, a little bit more socially awkward, not quite sure he'd fit in with this crowd. And, um, and actually, he didn't turn up the whole night. And the next day at church, I kind of bumped into him, and I said, oh, why, why, didn't, you, why didn't you come to the party? And he said, oh, actually, um, actually, I did try and come. Uh, I, I came all the way to the bar, you said, and I actually had a present for you, Steve. I, 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 just, I just stood outside that bar, and I just thought, I'm not sure I'm going to fit in in there. And I couldn't see you in there. I couldn't see where you'd be. So I was a bit embarrassed and a bit nervous about walking in on my own. So I stood outside the bar for about 30 minutes. And then I thought, actually, probably it's better for everyone if I just went home. And I was so ashamed. Because all I was concerned about was me. Me looking good. Me making a good impression. Me impressing my kind of work colleagues, being in the right bar, the right vibe. And there are so many things I could have done if I hadn't been so full of my own concerns to make it easier for me. I could have gone with him. I could have gone outside and got him when he arrived. I could have arranged to meet him outside. I could have brought him in and made sure to everyone else that he was one of my friends and he was a guest of honor at that party. I could have hired a completely different bar a completely different location to make it easier for him to cross the threshold. I didn't do any of those things because all I was thinking about was myself, actually. And that's a little bit what pride does. It kind of, it kind of makes you focus on yourself. 
So it's a little bit like this, um, just to use a little example. So I'm just going to uh, ask Josh to come up here. Josh, can you just come up? So imagine that I really want to connect with Josh, and Josh's over there, and I'm over here, and I think I quite like Josh. I quite, quite like to get to know him a bit. He seems like quite a good worship leader. He's all right, anyway. And, um, and uh, so I want to connect with Josh, but the thing is, the difficulty is, there are all these things that kind of get in the way, because, you know, I've got my kind of pride, and that's a bit to do with my kind of ego, and it's a bit to do with how... You know, I project myself, my image, and that kind of gets in the way a little bit as well. And then there's my concern about how other people view me. I don't want to look bad in their eyes. And then there's my concern about my status and my concern about my significance. And actually, all those things impair my ability to connect with Josh. I mean, how am I going to connect with Josh, reach out to him when I'm so focused on all these things? can't actually get anywhere near him. There's no space. There's no ability to connect. Because I'm so full of my own pride. But here's the thing. You know, if I kind of know that I'm loved by God and that my significance is not up for grabs, I can kind of lay down that bit of my pride. And if I know that my status is a much-loved child of the Most High God, then I can lay down that bit of my pride. And if I know that actually, actually, I'm viewed by him, you know, he kind of rejoices over me. I don't have to worry so much about what other people think about me, and I can lay down that bit of my pride. And if I know actually that, um, that he's for me, I don't have to worry about being jostled by the status stuff in other people's lives. I can lay that bit of my pride. And if I know actually, if I know that, I, that this is something I struggle with, that he'll help me with it, then I can lay down my pride a bit more. And what that enables me to do is to connect. You see, pride builds Barriers, but humility builds bridges. And then I've got an opportunity to connect with Josh. You know, pride creates division. It impairs proximity. But when you're humble, you can draw close. Pride says, come up here to my level if you dare. Humility says, let me draw close to you. And it has an impact on a whole number of different areas. And it's interesting that Paul gives us like an acid test for whether we're wrestling with this, how we're doing with this whole area. He says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And both of those things are actually a real challenge for us. I mean, are we prepared to weep with those who weep? You know, to come alongside someone, that will cost us a little bit. We'll have to reach outside our comfort zone. But actually... I found that's not the greatest test. There are lots of people who will weep with you when you weep, actually, because there's something vulnerable about you then, and they can connect you. It's much harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know when you've got a great friend, a friend for life, when they rejoice, when you rejoice. But it's hard. But just imagine, you know, later on today, just gives me a call. And uh, I take the call, and Josh shares some great news with me. You know, he says, oh, you know, I, um, I'm going to play worship all around the world, you know, or uh, I've, I've, I've got this great award, or um, I've got this promotion, you know, I'm going to be your boss now, or whatever, you know. Or, um, or actually someone just really kindly and randomly has given me 10 million pounds. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's a part of me, of course, that wants to be happy for Josh. I think there's a part in all of us that also says, what about me? Why did I find it so hard to learn to play the guitar? <laughs> I never got a chance to lead worship. Huh. 
I didn't get that award. I didn't get that promotion. I got passed over for that thing. No one's given me 10 million pounds. So you kind of want to celebrate with the person who's celebrating, but you actually find it hard as well. And you can kind of try and, you know, you can try. You know, one, one thing you might do is you think, well, I don't want to look like someone who's being resentful. So maybe I'll just, I'll send them a text, you know, kind of with an emoji or something, you know. And <laughs> I'm not feeling it, but it will look as though I'm feeling it. You know, I could send them a text. Or maybe I could say, you know, oh, well, you know, it's great news. And I could kind of smile through the gritted teeth, just say, I'm really happy for you. It's great. Couldn't be happy. Yeah, it's brilliant news. Well, thanks, Josh. Um, that might work. Or I could ooh, pray for these. And, um, or I could, I, could, uh, I, could, I could kind of give them a high five, maybe a hug, say that's great news, but I'm dying inside. You know, I could try and cheer him on, even though I'm finding it really difficult. It kind of sticks in my mouth. Or I could be so committed to laying down my pride and focusing on him, so connected to him, so for him, and so forgetful of myself that when he tells me he's got great news, I couldn't be happier than if it had happened to me. That his victories are my victories. That his defeats are my defeats. That's one thing I could do. Round of applause for Josh. Just move some of these out of the way. And that's the thing, but how do you do that? Because that's really exciting. I think the world would find that quite captivating if we lived our lives like that. But how do you do it? And Paul says, in view of God's mercy. Your motivation for that is in view of what God has done for you in Jesus. Jesus, who though he was, had equality with God, made himself nothing. Jesus, who was the most significant person who'd ever lived, had the most important job ever given to a person, who the destiny of humanity rested on his shoulders. He only had three years of public ministry to set a vision, build a team, train his followers, yet you wouldn't have known it to look at him. He didn't barge people out of the way. He spent time with the least, the last, and the lost. And he gave himself on the cross for me and for you. You see, when you see the cross, when you come near the cross, it kind of blows your pride out of the water. You can't be proud at the foot of the cross because you see that Jesus had to die for you and you see he was willing to die for you, to give it all for you. And that humbles you, but it also gives you a new confidence. And it's not a confidence based on your status, based on your significance, based on your achievements. It's a confidence based on the truth that God loves you. And if you ever doubt that, look at the cross. So firstly, go low. But then secondly, go long. Go long. If you want to, you know, if you want to, you know, find friends, forge great friendships, you've got to go low. If you want to lose your enemies, if you want to know how to handle your enemies, you've got to go long. You've got to develop an eternal perspective. Because Paul says it's not just about how you treat people you get on with, it's how you respond to how people treat you. And he's writing to a church which faces persecution. And the reality of life is you will face opposition and enemies in your life. Even if sometimes because you're trying to live for God. What makes you distinctive is how you respond to that. So Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something 
to eat. And this is the reality of what it means to be a living sacrifice. This is where it really bites. And you might be in this right now. You might have been attacked, criticized unfairly. Someone's been unkind to you, undermined you, schemed and plotted against you, put some misinformation out about you into the company, into your family, into your friendships, treated you unfairly. Maybe you were promised a promotion and you were passed over. Maybe someone you loved. Maybe someone you still love let you down and betrayed you. And our instinct, our instinct when that happens is to get our own back, to let them know that if people mess with you, there are gonna be consequences. And some of you are really direct and you're gonna challenge back straight away. It's like, it's just gonna flow out of you straight away. Some of you are more indirect. Some of you are quite like, just do it whenever you get the chance. Some of you will be more strategic in how you try and pay it back. I knew one person who, uh, her boyfriend um, let her down in a significant way. So when he went on holiday, she got into his flat, she uh, spread crest seeds all over his carpet and then watered it. And, um, and he came back to this kind of crest carpet. I mean, that's, you've got to admire the thought that goes into I'm not condoning it, but you've got to admire the thought that goes into that. But it's a natural thing to do, to want to get back at those who attack us. When I was studying, um, I worked part-time at WH Smith, the kind of news agents and, and books and things like that, and uh, in the Luton Arndale Centre. And I had the privilege of working in the book department, which I thought was quite, you know, it's a good thing. And one day, this woman came in and came straight up to me, and she was a little bit on edge. She had what you might call like an angry resting face, I don't know if you know people like that. And uh, she came straight up to me and she said, do you have the latest book? by Andrew Beanor. And I was thinking, oh, uh, I'm not sure if I know that author. So I just said, oh, I don't know, actually. Uh, let me just check. And then she kind of leaned in, and quite loudly, actually, she said, you do know who Andrew Beanor is, don't you? And you know how everyone kind of stops what they're doing, kind of looks over, like there's going to be a bit of a scene. You know, they're pretending to still look for their book, but actually they're fascinated by what's going on. I was conscious that everyone's suddenly looking at me. And I said, oh, actually, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I haven't heard of that author. Sorry, and um, she said, this is ridiculous. No wonder this company is going down the tube when it employs people like you. I mean, what are they teaching them in the schools these days? I mean, you obviously have no education. How can you not know about this book? I was like, oh my goodness, everyone's kind of looking at me, and I was getting a bit red, getting a bit flustered. She said, how can you be that useless? There's some truth in that, but it's public, you know. And it, um, and she was just carrying on, just saying, I can't believe you've never heard of Andrew Beanor. He, you know, he's written one of the books of the year. He's a remarkable, famous, you know, historian. How can you not know about it? It's won a number of awards. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute. Does she mean Anthony Beaver? Oh. <laughs> and kind of two roads open up before me. And I could have covered over her offense and made it not very embarrassing for her, but she had basically humiliated me in front of the whole store. So I, I would love to say I took that path, but that wasn't the path I took. I thought, you have, you've given it to me, you're getting it back with interest. So I said, do you mean Anthony Beaver? And she kind of took a step back. She said, oh, um, 
Yes, I said, yeah, Anthony Beaver. Yeah, 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 Anthony Beaver. Yeah, you, you, mean, you mean his latest book, Stalingrad, I think, which is a great book, by the way. Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we, we do stock that book. I mean, it's a brilliant book. I don't know what you th- I wasn't backing off now. I said, I don't... <laughs> I just, I can't, I still can't believe he got access to the uh, Soviet archives. I mean, it's remarkable they gave him that permission and the way he searched through those archives. I just think it's a remarkable, well, it's beautifully written as well. I mean, it deserved all those awards it won. I haven't read a book like this for a long time, which manages to convey the brutality, but captivating brutality of war through the everyday experiences of undocumented and everyday lives. <laughs> yeah, I'll get it for you. <laughs> Here it is. Thanks so much. And everyone else in the store is like. <laughs> she kind of took her book, kind of paid for it, scuttled out, embarrassed. And I tell you, it felt so good. Just sitting there. For about 60 seconds. And I thought, what am I doing? You know, she humiliates me, so I humiliate her. Is that the level I'm at? You know, I could try and kid myself. I was doing it for her good. I was trying to teach her an important life lesson. But actually, I was just defending my slightly wounded pride. Every time you face an attack, a criticism, you have a choice. Are you going to focus on the impact on your immediate circumstances, whether you're up and down, how this impacts your status, your significance, your image? Are you going to focus on your immediate circumstances, or are you going to focus on your eternal character, the forging of your eternal character? Go long. Have the long-term view in mind. You know, it's not your responsibility, it's not your job to pay back every wrong you suffer. You're not the judge of all. God knows everything, and he has limitless power and authority. Let him vindicate you. Leave room for him. You know, revenge is so dangerous. It has this unique way of shaping you, almost twisting you, to be more like the very thing which has offended you. What do you think is more likely to bring change? A harsh word, a harsh act of revenge, or a kind act which covers over the offense? It's not just overlooking the insult. Paul talks about really practical ways that you can respond. You know, feeding those who are hungry. You know, giving a drink to your enemy who might be thirsty. Why? Because it's powerful. Love is the only force which is capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And actually... Enemies struggle to continue to be enemies when you respond with love. Paul writes, it's it's like burning coals on their head. It literally blows their mind. It confounds them. But then there's an acid test here as well. And the acid test is this. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. And the real test of whether I've forgiven, whether I trust God to vindicate me, whether I'm prepared to have that eternal perspective, is whether I can pray for those who attack me, who might be my enemies, in such a way as to ask God to bless them and actually mean it. You know, I find there are kind of a number of stages to this. I might start off by saying, God, they're not a nice person. Would you just teach them a lesson for their own good? Would you just act, you know, for their own good, for their long-term benefit, just, you know. And then the next stage, I think, well, Lord, I don't know what to do with this person. They are beyond hope, as far as I'm concerned. Just want to hand them over to you. Brackets, your judgment. Hand them over to you. 
and um, for you to deal with them. I don't know what to do with them. It's more than that. You could say, well, Lord, would you, would you bless them in some way? If you have to, amen. <laughs> and then the rest of the night, you're kind of worrying, I wonder if that's one of the prayers he might answer. I don't know. What we're talking about here is praying, Lord, would you act towards them in such a way as you actually bless them, that you give them good things, that you show them your favor, that you bless their lives. And some of those important battles you'll ever fight are over deciding whether to pray for people you don't like and who have acted against you. I still remember going through a difficult time with um, someone who just didn't like me. They were quite aggressive, quite rude. They were rude to my face. They were rude behind my back. They tried to turn other people against me. And I just felt like I only had two options. One option was to get them back, to fight back. And the other option was just to cut them out of my life, just to kind of, I'm done with you. I'm not going to engage in any way. I'm going to shut you down. And they both actually were quite attractive options to me. I thought, I like the idea of both of those. Um, but I went to see someone who was a bit wiser, a bit older about it, and I asked for some advice. I was hoping he might be able to give me a game plan. And all he said was, have you tried praying for him, asking God to bless him? I came away thinking, that's a really bad idea. Like, that's just a bit naive. I'm like in the trenches here. That's not going to help. But... It had really started to affect me, and a couple of nights later, I was just struggling to get to sleep. I don't know if you've ever found that, where you find yourself kind of sitting up in bed in the night, and you just can't get to sleep. And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything. I might as well try. So I, I just started praying, and I said, Lord, I lift up to you. Let's call him Phil, because that's his name, actually. <laughs> and um, I lift up to you, Phil, and... Uh, I don't know what's going on with him. I don't, know, I don't know why he's behaving like this, but I want to pray for him. You love him. don't know why you love him, but you do. <laughs> would you help him? Lord, would you actually ask, would you bless him? And it was a really hard prayer, but I meant it. And yet it wasn't like it changed overnight. He was still really difficult. But it was almost as if me praying for him meant that he lost some of his power to unsettle me. It's hard to be upset by someone who you're asking God to bless. And it's almost like he became smaller in my mind. And I had a new compassion for him. And basically, I was able to keep my side of the road clean. Sometimes that's all you can do. Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes all you can do is keep your side of the road my motives towards him weren't tainted by anger anymore and sometimes the, the loving thing to do is to challenge someone sometimes the loving thing to do is to cover over their offense but you don't you're never going to really going to be able to discern between those two things unless you're praying for that person and after a while to be honest I didn't even see him as an enemy anymore we didn't become good friends he wasn't interested in that I lost an enemy and that's only possible when you take the long view when you have an eternal perspective and when actually, deep down, what you most long for them and for yourself is that both of you become more like Jesus. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, you can ask the Spirit to give you such a perception, such a vision, such a sight of Jesus, such a view of how he humbled himself, 
You know, how he made himself nothing. How, how for the joy set before him, the knowledge that he would be with you and the Father for eternity, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the insults, the persecution, the pain, the separation of the cross. He did that. Who prayed on the cross for the very people who hammered nails into his hands and his feet. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. I know that that's a God prayer that God loves to hear and loves to answer because he's heard it from his son. And that shifts things then. That shifts how we feel about our enemies. That means we have the potential to respond in love. It means we have a new confidence. Once we get an image of Jesus, what he's done for us, when the Spirit impresses that on our hearts, we can start to lay down our pride. We can start to engage in a new way. We can start to forge friendships which enable us to flourish in our lives because we're cheering each other on and comforting each other. Cheering in success, comforting in failure. And that gives us a resilience to keep going. And we can respond even to those who attack us and to our enemies with love. And when people see that, when your colleagues see that, when people around the board table see that, when people in your schools and your universities and your families and your friendships see that, they'll be captivated by it because it's different, it's distinct, and it doesn't make any sense but for the fact that your faith is in Jesus Christ and you have a hope that he will return and he will make all things right. And that's a powerful witness to this church, to this city. And as we together live like that, we have the potential to shift things, to be a community of people who live in this city and change things because there's something different about us. We can be salt and light where he has placed us. And together we can see the name of Jesus lifted high in our church, in our city, and right across this nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.